start on time, so that's what we're going to do. Um, we'll just have a little time of introduction as people are beginning to come in, so they, um, they'll, they'll miss out on some of the good part of finding out a little bit about you all. Um, thank you all for coming. This is Differentiated Instruction. Um, my name is Kira Wilson. I am the administrator of Veritas Academy in Florida. We are a school entering our sixth year with about 120 students. We are K through 12. Um, I have been with them since the very beginning, so in finding out a little bit about you all, we'll find out how many of you have been involved from the very beginning and, and what that looks like. Um, so if I could, just let me ask you some questions. How many of you are elementary teachers, K through 6? How many are middle school, high school? How many are um, state certified? How many have a degree in an area that you're teaching? How many have homeschooled? Okay. How many live in Texas? Okay. Where are you from? Arkansas. Where are you from? Okay. Um, did I miss anybody else that wasn't from from another area? Where, where, Oregon? Georgia. Oh, Georgia. Okay. All right. Well, good. Um, how many of you are familiar in some way with differentiated instruction? All right. And um, is, there, is there anyone that is, um, how many of you have regular staff development at your school? Great. Okay. Well, let's just go ahead and um, take a minute to pray, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to uh, be together, uh, Lord, to be able to network and to be able to share ideas and uh, to be able to reflect uh, on the things, Lord, that uh, you are wanting to equip us with, to take back to schools, to um, further your work in each of our lives and, and the lives of our school. Father, I pray that you would be with me as I uh, present this information, that that everyone would go away, Lord, today with with something that they can use in their classroom, share with those in their school, Father, that would be of benefit. Father, I pray that you would be with those that are here and help them to receive whatever it is, Lord, that you would have for them for those very purposes, for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, um, a few weeks ago, I was taking a concealed weapons course, and um, I picked up just two very, very helpful points that actually improved my shot dramatically. And so I hope today that as we spend this time that there is something that you take away. I recently talked with a student who was thinking of taking a course in the area. She's now graduated, taking a course in an area that she's interested in, in maybe doing um, vocationally. And someone told her, no, she didn't need to take the class. She could, you know, she had an, enough administrative uh, skills to figure it out. And I said, you know, learn from those who have gone before you. There are people that have, you know, that write books and, you know, do this kind of thing that have done it for years and years and years. Why would you, at, I didn't quite say it this way, but I'm thinking, why would you at 18 or 19 think that you have the skills and ability to just figure it out? Or why would you invest years and years of your time to find out that you could have 
learned from someone else and furthered that. Not that we are not, um, you know, that we can't be self-learners. I think that's very important. But just encouraging her, and I shared with her this, you know, little scenario of my just picking up two things that had a tremendous effect on my shot. And so today I hope that that will be true of you as we go through this. Okay, what is... um, I'm going to have to get used to doing my own PowerPoint. I'm not used to having to do that, so hopefully I will not, I will not keep forgetting um, to push this. What is differentiated instruction? Um, differentiated instruction really is, a t- is teaching in response to the various needs of learners in the classroom. It's differentiating between one student and another. And it's not going to happen. Um, that is really what um, we're going to talk about today. And much of what I'm going to talk to you about today has come from a book by Carol Ann Tomlinson, How to Differentiate Instruction in Mixed um, Classrooms. Now, before I talk about what it is, I think it's really helpful to look at what it isn't because it's, it's kind of a buzzword, as we've had other buzzwords in education you know, over many decades. And so I want to talk about what it is not. It's not the individualized instruction of the 70s. If you went to school in the 70s, you're familiar with that educational term. It's not individualizing instruction for individual children. It's not chaotic. It's not a, um, okay, everyone's going to do their own thing in the classroom with, with no um, uh, restraints, uh, p- purposeful goals, and so forth. It is not another way to provide homogeneous groups where you, you know, you put like children together so that they can learn and do things that they're either interested in or whatever. It's not just for special education students. So it's not just for the very, you know, for the gifted or for those that have severe learning uh, disabilities of some kind. All right, so those are the things it's not. What is it then? First of all, it's proactive. Um, You all are going to get a handout on all these slides. You are going to get the handout of the small slides. So there may be some specific things, but if it's on the slide, you're going to get it, okay? Um, And I probably will hand that out partway. I just don't want to hand it out now and have you all read the whole thing and think that all the things that I'm filling in in between may not be important. So you know how that goes (laughs) if you're teaching. Okay, so it is proactive. It's purposeful. It's something that you have to make um, a conscious effort to do. It's being flexible and seeing that, okay, maybe the way I've been doing this is not the best way, and I can alter it and make some changes to improve the achievement of these students. Um, it's qualitative not uh, rather than quantitative. So, again, it's not doing the same thing repeatedly. It's being purposeful in what you're doing so that you're, you're hitting the target the first time. Um, it's rooted in assessment. Assessment is very important. Assessment is very varied, and we're going to talk about different ways of being able to assess student achievement and student learning. It provides multiple approaches to content, process, and product. Content is the what they're learning, the content of what they're learning. Process is how they're learning. Product is how they're showing or what they're doing to, um, to provide you the information that, that they're understanding it. It is student-centered rather than teacher-centered. It is really a blend of the whole classroom group and individual instruction. It is also... Um, starting where students are, 
rather than adopting a standardized approach. It's, it's finding out where, where, where's this particular child and where's this class in general? Where can I move them and take them so that, achieve, uh, you know, learning is being achieved rather than thinking, okay, in this curriculum, we learn multiplication or we learn this particular skill and you're going to start where you've always started regardless of the group. It is being responsive to, to um, uh, responsive to their needs rather than a, a one size fits all. A differentiated in classroom, the teacher proactively plans and carries out various approaches to content product process and product in anticipation of and response to students' uh, differences in reading interests and learning needs. This that was from Tomlin, the book that I mentioned earlier. Um, all right, why, why differentiate instruction? Well, if, if the goal of the academics is student understanding and student learning, we want them to achieve, then we need to meet them where they are so that they're able to accomplish that. Um, psychologists tell us that students learn only when a task is a little too difficult, a little too hard. Here's what happens if it's not too difficult. If it's not too difficult, if it's too easy for them, they actually, their, their brain um, actually goes into a downshift mode and there's no learning. If it's too hard, they're frustrated. It's beyond their comfort level and they don't learn. So the optimal degree of difficulty that a, that a student, that learning takes place is referred to as the student's zone of um, proxis, uh, proximal uh, development. And so um, as we look at what here's, what, here's what brain research shows us. When it's too difficult, it downshifts, and they go into a part, they, they're using a part of the brain designed to protect. If it's too difficult, you know how that is. You've been in situations, and we're going to see in just a minute. If it's too difficult, your response is, I'm not even going to try. You know, there, there's no way that, you know, this is, this is not possible. Um, and... Yet, if it's too easy, the learner does not show thoughtful brain activity. And what happens here when it's too easy is that they are more likely um, to, to go into really a stage of sleep. Their brain is more in a stage of sleep. So, so what, what's the goal then? Obviously, then, um, only when tasks are moderately challenging for an individual does the brain think in a way that promotes learning. So it needs to be a little difficult so that they're moving forward, because that's our goal, right? We want to move them forward. So much of education is spent rehearsing what they've done again and again and again and again. And while it, it's good in one sense to do that for long-term memory, we've got to move beyond that. So, sorry, that was the think. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever seen a learning retention pyramid. But I think this is so helpful. Uh, you know what? I didn't ask. How many of you are not teachers but parents of the school? Parents have parents in the school. Okay. Uh, because this is very, very helpful to share with your parents because it helps them to see what they're doing at home and how retention is going to occur. So um, we have uh, on this pyramid from the the least amount of retention to the greatest. What do you think is at the height of retention? What is the, the very, um, in terms of us providing information, uh, what, what venue shows the least retention? Does anybody know? 
Yep, lecture. Exactly. Which is what we're doing right now. Okay? So unless I'm providing something other than just a lecture, you're only going to get 5%. That's not very much. You know what? It's overall. So it, it, it's going, this is going to apply to everyone, even adults. Okay? So at 10%, what would be up from a lecture? What's another way that we, that we learn on a regular basis? Okay, which would be reading. Okay? At reading, if you ask the student to read the information, they're going to retain about 10%. So if a, if a parent says to a child, I want you to go read your science, Okay, or if you give them a science, I want you to read that. They're only going to be retaining 10% if you're adding nothing to it. All right, let's go up from there. At, at 20%, we add some audiovisual. So I have some sense that you will retain about 20% because I'm offering you some audiovisual aids in terms of the presentation. All right, up from that at 30%, we have demonstration. So if in a lab situation, or in a classroom situation, if you are demonstrating, if you are showing how to divide words into syllables as opposed to just telling them how to do it or reading it in a book, and you do some examples, you demonstrate it, you have them demonstrate it, um, you're going to um, increase retention to about 30%. Then we have group discussion. So a little while, when we're able to discuss things, um, we have, again, another increase in retention. Then we have practice by doing. So if we engage students in doing something, if we invite them to the board to do the syllabication, if we invite them to the board to do the math problems, if they're doing it with a partner at their seat and they're doing it and practicing it, they have a greater retention of what they're doing. And does anyone know what the last one might be? Exactly. So when you teach it or immediately use it, you've got 90% retention. So I'm going to ask all of you to go home and teach it to your staff and your colleagues because that way I'm assured that you're going to have some sense of this retention. And you know what? If you just have a few bullet points, um, no you know, connection to my uh, concealed weapons class, but if you've got a couple bullet points that you can remember and you share them, you're going to retain them. Okay, this is so valuable for you as teachers and to share that with parents because when they allow their children to tell them, you know, sometimes how, you know, children want to tell a story. I read a book and I've got some little nieces and nephews now. I've got two children of my own. They're grown. Um, but I've got some younger nieces and nephews. And when they tell a story, you know, they, you know how it is. They'll just go on and on and on and every little detail and you think, oh my, will it ever stop? But it's so good for them because it helps them to be able to, um, to synthesize the information that they have learned. Okay, so if we take a look at these last three, um, well, even the last four, demonstration, discussion, practice by doing, and teaching others, that's more active learning. So from about really... You know, 50% to 90%, surely you want that much. You're putting this effort into teaching. Surely you want that much retention. So active learning increases the effectiveness and the efficiency of teaching and the learning process. Retention occurs most efficiently through concrete activity-based experiences. Okay? So that's really important for us to know. 
Active learning involves input from multiple sources. So again, they're, they're hearing the teacher or they're hearing a student teach. They are seeing in demonstration. They, in some cases, may be feeling as they are getting involved kinesthetically in some activity. Lear active learning also involves um, process, interacting with other people and materials, stimulating multiple areas of the brain to act. It involves output. So it's not just a matter of, I'm going to learn all this information, but active learning means that in some way they're going to be able to, to give, you know, to, to extend that information in, in some manner, either with their own personal demonstration, their own personal teaching, through some model that they make, a diagram, something that they are doing. Okay? All right. Here's what I want you to do, and I'm going to let you work in groups to do this, okay? Using the Chinese alphabet, I would like you to write a word with six, uh, a six-character word. Could you, could you all get in groups and do that? No. And, I mean, there's no way that you can do that. Okay, now, okay, I'll vary that. Um, and I'll say I would like you to get together in groups and write a, a six-letter word using the English alphabet. All right? Now, let's evaluate that activity. Is the first activity appropriate for this audience? Why? Right. And did I bother to find that out ahead of time? Other than looking and seeing that I don't have an Asian audience and the chances of you all knowing the Chinese alphabet would be pretty slim. Um, but again, uh, we're going to find, I need to know my audience. When we're teaching something, we need to know who we're teaching. All right. So um, is the second activity appropriate for this audience? Based on what I said earlier, why not? It's too easy. You wouldn't have to work in groups for that, would you? Um, and, I, and you wouldn't have to give it much thought at all. But how about if I said to you, I want you to, I want you to work in groups and find for this audience a 12-letter word that begins with S and ends in D. Okay? That's challenging, but you probably could figure it out. Okay? That would be far more appropriate for, for this particular audience. So it's important that, um, you know, we, we know... Who our audience is. All right, let's take a look at um, strategies for differentiated instruction step by step. And there are four steps. The first one is to know your students. Determine their level. Know their prior knowledge. It's important. This is really important. We, have a, we do a kindergarten and first grade screening every year so that we make sure that our students are, are ready. We don't accept children in the kindergarten based on their age or their birth date. Now, our state does. You know, you have to have a birthday by a certain day and, you know, to be in kindergarten. We have found that we have four-year-olds that are ready for kindergarten and we have five-year-olds that are not. And so it doesn't, the age is not what we're looking for. We want to know, you know, what, what information, what understanding and where their development is. So we do a screening. Well, last year we had this little boy come in, and he was actually quite young. I don't, I'm not really sure at the screening he was even five yet. And we screened him for kindergarten. And, of course, he, he passed without any problem. The problem was, however, that we didn't go beyond the kindergarten screening to see whether he was ready for first grade. And it turned out that he was more than ready for first grade. And so that's where he was. He very successfully completed a year of first grade. And it would have been a disservice to him and the teacher 
because there would have been problems, to have put him in first grade. So it's really important that we understand their ability and uh, know, know their prior knowledge. We can look at past records. One of the things that we do is we ask at the parent orientation for the parents to write a letter to their teacher um, describing their child, telling the, child, the teacher a little bit about their child. Because as you know as teachers, it takes you a good long while to really know who that child is, to know their strengths, their character strengths, their weaknesses, their likes, their dislikes. And to have a little letter, doesn't have to be real long, that just sort of describes this person, any medical issues, any academic challenges, whatever, helps you so much um, to be able to start the year with that information. Also, just an immediate observation when they come in at the beginning of the year to make that a priority. If you don't have information from parents, then you can you know, immediately assess them with some either informal assessment or observation. I hope that all of you look at the student files of your students each year as they come in. If you don't, you, you need to. You need to look at their strengths and weaknesses, not for the sake of labeling them, but for the sake of uh, some kind of a benchmark in which you can draw from. Uh, it's important to survey their interests and to find out uh, also, you know, what are they interested in and what do they know? If you're going to, to, to teach them about castles and, you, you know, you, you want to know whether half the kids have already learned about castles or how much they know because maybe you are going to give them just the basics and maybe they have this incredible computer program at home that helps them to build them and they know all kinds of things and they could be helping you teach about castles, okay? So it's important for us to know what they know. And then, of course, structure and class management are also very important. This is not something that can be done in a chaotic environment. All right. You want to, as the second thing, you want to vary teaching instruction because not all children we know, they don't all learn the same way. And these are different things that allow students to engage in learning in a different way. Now, direct instruction is not engaging. Direct instruction is just that. It's the teacher telling. It's lecturing, and I'm going to give you the information. You're going to take notes. This is probably done more at a high school level, although in our high school, we have a lot of classes that are very interactive, and we still have a lot of classes. Our science classes are still very model-oriented, very kinesthetic. They do a lot of projects because of that retention factor. But most, most teaching is probably sort of the traditional method would be a direct instruction. It's teacher-centered, and um, it's based on mastery. We want you to know these facts, write these facts down, and study those facts, and we're going to take a test on Friday. Okay. Another would be inquiry-based learning, and as the name implies, it's, it's students being able to explore, inquire about what they are learning. So it involves a variety of things, but one of the things that it involves is it's, it's developing critical thinking skills which, and problem-solving skills, which is what we want for our kids. Because you know what? In 30 years, if they don't remember the exact dates of their history, it won't be that important. What will be important, whether or not they can think critically about whether or not, you know, uh, about a framework of history where they understand, okay, you know, this, this thought affected this culture and this culture affected this culture and so forth and so on. So it's important that they're able to think critically. 
It, inquiry-based, would be more student-centered. It's investigative. Another one that I love is cooperative learning because cooperative learning helps those students that need to be motivated, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and who um, have a chance to uh, work together and, and shine in an area that they can then share and teach with others. So there's a couple. How many of you engage in cooperative learning in your classrooms? Okay. Probably a lot of you do in some ways. I mean, even even a dis, um, all right. Let, let me give you some examples. Um, a jigsaw is is one strategy that's a cooperative learning um, method. And jigsaw is we're going to learn about mid, the Middle Ages. We're going to have five groups, and in each group there's four people. All the ones are going to study the life in a monastery. All the twos are going to study life in a castle. All the threes are going to do the feudal system, and the fours are going to be are going to do knights. Okay, so the four, you know, the ones of all each of those groups get together, the twos of each of those groups, and so they learn about the life of the monastery. And then they go back to their groups and each of them teach each of their little topics. So they're all, they've all learned something and now they're going to get a chance to teach it to their group and their group's going to learn from the expert uh, in that field in each of their groups. Another one that I like is the, the team, pair, and solo. You start out and... Think of math, could be anything, but they're going to work as a team, three or four kids, and they're going to solve this really difficult math problem as a team. Uh, then they're going to be given another one, and they're just going to do it in pairs. And then they're going to be given another practice, and they're, it's on, you know, they're on their own. So whatever the skill may be, you've got a team effort, and you're kind of narrowing it down to help them to be able to do it independently, but they've got that practice and support of a team. And then the other are just study buddies. That can be something that you can do. It's a great tool. First thing when the kids come in the classroom and you know you need something to engage them right away rather than them, you know, yakking and taking forever to get settled. They know when they come in your, in, into the classroom, they can grab somebody that's already there and you've got, you know, three minutes or whatever it is you study until you're ready. You can study together your vocabulary words, your spelling words, uh, you know, your memory cards from your history, whatever the case may be. So um, study buddies are a good thing. Another teaching strategy, that, again, that you can vary is modeling. And I think modeling is so important. When you ask, and it's so nice that these really do cross all grade levels, but when you ask a student to do some research or work on some project or write some paper, it is so helpful to them to give them a model of what you're looking for. Because without that, it's so vague and so open-ended, especially with the advent of all the technology that we have. They can spend hours, and I've had parents, bless their hearts, that have said, you know, we, there was, you know, one simple little question in history, and they spent three or four hours looking for the answer on the, on the web for, you know, that was not the intent of the teacher. The teacher, that was, that was just like, you know, a, a fun little, you know, see if you can find this on a map. And, and, you know, so we want to be clear with what we're asking and when possible provide them with a model 
for what we're asking so that they are clear about that. Another is um, integration of technology. How many of you, a couple questions, how many of you are in a school of less than 100? Oh, good. Less than 200. Wow, less than 300. So you all are from some big schools. So some of these questions, how many of you have smart boards available to any of your students, or teachers? How about a, a Mimeo, if you know what a Mimeo is? Any other kind of technology other than a computer and laptops? Anything else that y'all are using? Pardon me? Okay. Anything else? Okay, good. Which is like a flip camera? Okay. There are so many things, and now there are some inexpensive things. I don't know if you're familiar with a digital tablet. But a digital tablet can be anything from the size of this netbook to a larger laptop. It's just, it, it, it's flat, but you use a special pen and you write on it. And I could go over this and I could be circling with this individual device. I can also erase with it. If you're a math teacher, it's got uh, grids on there. It's got line segments on there that you can pull up. So it's, it's a pretty neat tool for, you know, under, some are under four, some are even under 300. So it's, it's a pretty a pretty nice tool, a big, I think a lot of bang for the buck. But that certainly is a way of integrating. Integrating technology provides another way that students can get information and can be useful. Anybody familiar with United Streaming? It's Discovery's channel? Okay. Discovery Channel has a... Um, a database of over 40,000 different clips, articles, videos, biographies. I mean, think about the Discovery Channel, okay? And all of this has, is accessible to schools um, for a fee based on the number of students that you have. But it's a wonderful resource. And the thing that I like about it is that we can give it to our parents. So it's not just something that is used in the classroom. If the teacher doesn't have time to use it in the classroom, she can assign it to be done at home where they, they go, you know, she can give them a, a specific link to go to a specific piece of information and they can view it online or interact with it on, online. And that is a, a, a very useful resource, math, science, all kinds of things, literature. I would, I would let your administrator know, yeah, Discovery and United Streaming. Discovery.com, United Streaming. And I think for our school, there, there's no extra cost for our parents to use it. And I want to say it's about $600 a year for our, our teachers to access that. And it's yes, correct, correct. And it gives, basically, we have, we have our own password and we just provide our, our parents with that so they can get in and access it. Okay, step three, identify a variety of instructional activities. And again, it's important here that we're planning things that will motivate and challenge our students. It, it's, it's been shown that if students are motivated and interested, they're going to be engaged, and that engagement's going to cause you know, learning and achievement, which is our goal. So 
It's important to stay on task and plan activities that suits the needs of the students. And as far as staying on task, you know, there's a lot of, I have to remind our teachers, because I do enjoy projects. I enjoy plan, you know, for the student teachers, I'm sorry, to use projects as a means for the students to learn. There's a lot of wonderful, fun projects out there that don't have, that have a lot of work uh, that's required with a small amount of learning achieved. And so, you know, you have to balance those things out. Our history program provides a lot of different activities within each week's unit. And we allow, in many cases, the parents to choose one of the activities so that they can choose an activity based on their child's learning style. So if their child likes to do research and reading, they can do that. If, they, if they're very um, kinesthetic in their learning style, they can build a model and, you know, so forth. If they're uh, something else, maybe they might put together, you know, a skit or a video or something like that. So it's important to consider those things. Identify ways to assess or evaluate student progress. Varied methods of assessment to give students an opportunity to demonstrate authentic learning. And I'd like for you all to enter into this as well. Typically, we assess with unit tests that are provided with our curriculum, right? That's, that's kind of the traditional way of doing things. But there are so many other ways that we can do that. Providing students with a rubric is very important. How many of you are familiar with rubrics? Okay, that, I think that's everybody. So I think today it's, it's clear that a rubric is really important because it does let students know what's important and, and steers them in the right direction. Um, there's performance-based assessments, which are like our tests. There's mapping, and you know, there's the project where they have to come up with a product and represent that to the class. And by the way, that presentation to the class has so much value. If you go later on to the communicator's workshop, I know that's one of the things that they're going to say. Learning how to communicate in front of a group is a, a very important skill. And we find that when we start, we start at kindergarten. We have programs, and they present from the time they're very young all the way up and through. And I was just talking with one of our teachers. I remember a little, little guy in kindergarten one year. The students were all lined up across the platform. They were all dressed as a, a character, I believe, from the American history. This little guy, I remember, was Benjamin Franklin, really cute outfit. Every single one of them had a little, a little something to say about their character. Got to him totally frozen. And, you know, everybody was patient. We waited. And then, of course, the tears start to come. And, you know, there's no way now. You're not, you know. So, you know, we just moved on. That little guy now is in going into third or fourth grade. And while it still is not his cup of tea, he can, he can accomplish the task. And by the time he's in high school, it may well be his um, cup of tea. So it's important. Portfolios is another great way, just providing all kinds of information that they can put together as a portfolio of their work. What are some other things that you all do to uh, assess work? Yes. Great. Awesome. Great. Fabulous. That's fabulous. Because not, not only is it a great way of assessing them, it's causing them to think a whole lot more deeply about the material than if, you just, if they just answered 
questions. What are some other things? Uh, they could write a script. They could build a model. I've had students play charades to act out an individual, to act out an event. That's a lot of fun. And you know whether or not the student knows that character or that event and, and whether or not they're able to accomplish that task. Um, performing, doing some kind of performance. Anybody familiar with a flip camera? A flip camera is about the size of a cell phone, and it has the, the ability to um, videotape, and it's, some of them are up to two hours. Great little tool in the classroom, only about, um, I think they're somewhere between $100 and $200. But if your school had one that they could put in their little media center and you could check out, great tool for being able to videotape what the kids are doing and show it back to them and evaluate what they're doing and let them evaluate one another. It's a great activity for them to be able to make their own little video with in groups to be able to show what they've learned. Were you going to say something? Yeah, well, really, you know what? Mostly I've seen them online, but I bet Best Buy has them. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of online places, but I'm sure Best Buy has them. That's a great idea, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. Any, anybody else have anything particular that they, they use? Okay. Uh, let's see. Here's a chart that just kind of gives you an example. Uh, we've got... Uh, a student that's challenged, a student that's average, a student that's gifted. And we're looking at the content, which is the what of what we teach, the process, how we teach it, the product, how it's evaluated. With a child that's challenged, we may just give them three critical points that we want them to learn, just three concepts. And the how, they're going to, it, it may be more direct instruction um, each step in the research process because they do need direct instruction. They need the information. They're not equipped with how to get the information and they're not motivated to get the information. The product, um, it may be a group paper of one page, something limited. The average person will take that same topic and you want them to learn all aspects of that particular topic. And you want them, um, the process of how you're going to do that, you're going to model, you're going to show them what you want them to learn, you're going to let them work independently, and you're going to um, review with them and practice with them. And maybe there's, their product is going to be a five-page paper. The gifted child, the gifted child is typically intrinsically motivated. And so you, when they're given an opportunity to, to learn, they are not very motivated when they know the material. They just It's like we talked about earlier. Their brain goes to sleep, and oftentimes they become you know, a problem. But the gifted can study it in depth. Um, really, there can be sometimes minimal instruction on your part um, just by asking probing questions and encouraging them to do independent study. And they might present in the PowerPoint um, graphs or tables or that kinds of things. Uh-huh. Uh, in our model, too, and maybe in all models, but we don't pull out the individual children. We don't right. pull out for a right. child that's challenged. Mm-hmm. So you're dealing with the issue of, of the child's learning out of it, and you're modifying it, 
Sometimes they Okay. No, it's a good question. One of the things that's wonderful about the University of Model School is that we have the opportunity to encourage parents to do this kind of thing at home. So in our particular, I mentioned history. Our history, we let the parents choose their activity. And that's something that a lot of times is done at home. Sometimes they will bring it in to share. But when you're talking about what they're reading for the content, we have parents that say, oh, my child is reading above reading level and, you know, the reading at school isn't challenging enough. Well, who says you have to be limited by our reading list? You know, do you know where the library is? <laughs> you know, um, you know, you've got to... if. They can challenge and enrich and supplement their children's education. That's part of their responsibility. And so, to me, this comes into play so well in our model because it's not something like, I would make that chart for the kids. Okay, now all you that are, you know, just kind of challenged. And yet, on the other hand, you can, you could start with this. You could say, okay, you may, as your assessment, either do a one-page paper a five-page paper, or, you, you know, come, and you know what? They can come up with their own, too. That, that would be fine at their level. But the, the point is, is accepting that at their level and knowing that you are going to expect more. Then the interesting thing is, is you get into character, because what if you've got really gifted kids who are just lazy and they opt out to do the one-page paper? Well, that's where your relationship and partnership with the parent is so important because we don't want lazy kids. We want kids to be diligent. And so if they're capable, they need to be doing more, and we need to be encouraging the parents to have them be doing more. Uh, and, and I think that when, when students do that, again, intrinsically, th they will continue to do that when they see the reward of putting on something that's really, really valuable um, and, and they enjoy doing and sharing with others. So I don't know if that answers your question. And, you know, then you have these challenged kids who are highly, uh, who are highly motivated. They have true challenges, but character-wise, they're as diligent as the day is long, and they are going to put every effort into it and, and go beyond what we would expect of them. Good for them. You know, that's something that we want to encourage as well. Um, but in terms of a way of assessing um, you know, we, we know that we may not expect the same from those kids. And one of the things I also talk to our teachers about is that character is really important. And the way that we handle their view of one another is vital. And they need to understand that God created us all differently with different strengths and abilities. And we all develop at different stages. So we, had, we have had a ninth grade student taking math with a sixth grade student. And you would think, oh, gosh, that must feel, make the ninth grader feel like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you could have those things going on, but it's important that as teachers and as school leaders that we're representing that and presenting that as, you know what, this, this guy here did not get what he needed early on, and he, he's, he's behind. That doesn't make him dumb. He's working at where he needs to be. This one, God has given 
an ability to understand these concepts, and he's a little ahead of the game. Great. You know what? In the end, don't we all sort of, isn't there sort of an evening out of a lot of this as we get to adulthood? And so, you know, oftentimes there is this pecking order when we're in a school system, and it shouldn't be there. And so I I think it's how that's presented is is important. So um, in terms of the reading, you know, you're going to vary vary the reading levels. Again, we have a tendency in our program to select literature at the reading level. But we tell parents, we give them a supplemental reading list, and that supplemental reading list has books below reading level and far above reading level so that parents can pick and choose. For some, getting through six books a year is a challenge. My daughter read a book every week, you know, and so she had one in her hand all the time. My child would have been so bored if all, she, if all I gave her was six books a year to read. If you've got a child like that parent, please provide them with more information. Provide them with the materials they're asking for. Um, another thing you can do is putting material on tape. Use spelling vocabulary as readiness. Um, and, and make use of that, that home environment. That's really important. Present ideas through both auditory, kinesthetic, and um, visual means. Our history is very unique. Um, our, our history program is one in which we have a history event every year that is a culmination of everything they've learned. And it's really the purpose of the program is to showcase what they've learned. So it makes, it makes um, history come alive, and they're very, very involved in it. It's meet with small groups to reteach an idea um, for those that are struggling and extend thinking and uh, skills to more advanced learners. We are short. Okay, process, how? Um, use tiered activities. Learners work with some important information, understanding skills, and then they progress again. But that can only occur effectively. You know, we think that we're tiering the activities, and they, they already knew the information up to rung four, and you went to rung five. Well, note that they're at rung four, so you can take them beyond that in terms of tiering those activities. Provide parent enrichment ideas and supplemental reading. Again, we try to, to give other ideas that take parents beyond what that assignment sheet gives them. Developing personal agendas. You know, you writing down tasks, having them write down tasks they need, uh, work that's common for the whole class, and work for individual learners. Um, Use manipulatives or hand-on support, hands-on support for students who might need them. Um, Vary the time that it takes to, to do a task. Um, and again, that's something that occurs at home. And those kinds of tasks you might wait to assign for home, for home use. The product, evaluating. Give students options um, on how to express their, their learning. Use rubrics that match and extend students' varied activity levels. Again, that's really important. And if you're going to use a rubric, it's really important that they have it at the beginning. I know sometimes we've had, I've struggled with our teachers that come up with the rubric weeks after they've given the assignment. The kids have already done a lot of work, and then they're handed the expectations. It's like, that, that just does not work. Okay, it frustrates parents, and it frustrates students. 
and it's great for them to, to encourage them to come up with their own product um, that contain the, the elements that you want it to contain and be able to, to teach it to others. Do we go till 12? Thinking, oh my goodness. Okay, I think that's right. Qual- quality differentiated instruction. Okay, good. Okay. Quality differentiated instruction um, involves lessons, activities, and products are designed to ensure that students understand the essentials. Um, materials and tasks are interesting to students and seem relevant to them. Learning is active, and we talked about that. There is joy and satisfaction in learning for each student. So imagine a classroom where students are really engaged in the process. And maybe they're up and doing, maybe they're just engaged in a great discussion. One of the advantages that we also have as a university model school is the idea of smaller classrooms. And our older students, that's one of the, the highlights, that's one of the top things on their list of things that they like about Veritas is the small classrooms. They have a lot of time individually with the teacher and they get to discuss things. And in that smaller environment, they're they're not intimidated to, to open up and share. And there's a lot of learning that goes on as a process. Okay, as a, um, uh, uh, just some, some cooperative learning uh, ideas. I, I'd like for us to just share some ideas of how in, in looking at this now, what are some things that you do in your classroom that helps to motivate them, that involves active learning, and that you communicate to the, t- to the parents to differentiate instruction at home? There may be some things. I'm thinking that there's probably some things that you are presently doing. So does anybody have anything that, that they can, comes to mind that they would want to share? I love what you're doing. What, what are some other things you're doing with your, your foreign language classes? That is fabulous. They enjoy coming to class. I feel like there's a vibe in there that they enjoy coming to class. They enjoy that hands on. All right, tell me how it's hands on. Well, I mean, they're, they're creating they're creating the questions themselves. I mean, they bring it to me, and I have them go up to slots where they put them in slots with mm-hmm. one class, and then at the end of class, they play the field game thing. And students are doing it. They split them up into three, three groups, and they have 10 minutes, and they have to answer them. Mm-hmm. And after the three answers, you know, once they answer, I do the question. Mm-hmm. And then I take a look at them, and they hum them up. And then they have buzzers, and they buzz them in. And then they mm-hmm. the teacher that can teach them. That's great. Great. How many of you play Jeopardy with your students? Okay. It sounds sort of like a Jeopardy game a little bit. Yeah, right. 
And do you know that there's, um, I wish I had this for you, but I'm sure if you Googled it, you would find it. But there is a site, uh, might come to me, where you can actually generate your own Jeopardy game online. And if you have the capacity to put it on the screen, you can play it right there. Um, and you can also, if I talk about this more, maybe it'll come to me. You can also make your own uh, puzzles and uh, search puzzles and everything for spelling on this particular website. No, but you know what? If you Google it, if you it, you will find it. Um, but games are a great way for review, great way to do assessment as well. And having them write the questions is another great way because uh, it's providing them. They're, they're looking at the material. You know, sometimes in a situation like history, you want them to remember something about a particular event or a person that will trigger the memory of the other things. And what they find interesting about that person may not be what you wanted to highlight about that person. But if for them, if it triggers what they've learned about it, isn't that really ultimately what we would want? So um, having them write questions is a great way to assess, and it's a great learning activity, too. Anything else? Okay. Great, good. Other things? How many of you uh, upper grades? Anybody teach math or science? Which one? Okay. So can you see ways? How is your class interactive? You know what? Okay, well, here's something that is so helpful. Kids love this, and they learn by it. Have them come to the board. And we actually have a couple roll-around boards so that we can put extra ones in the math class because it is so helpful for them to come up and do. Now, yes, they can do it on their paper, and if you're walking around and really looking at it, that's good. But when you actually watch them, you can... You can, help, you can see their thought process and right away make the correction for where they're not connecting the dots correctly. And Yeah. Another thing, you know, you could ask for your students to all have a small little whiteboard or you could keep them in the classroom. I used to have old chalkboards, little ones. And, you know, I, would, I could ask a question and they would have to write the answer, and then they'd show me, and I could, at a glance, see that everybody got it. Or in your case, you could actually have them work the problem. Uh, you could have them work together on something larger, or you could have them come to the board. But also games in which they're coming and they're working a problem and they're racing against one another to get the answer. Um, also using technology so that they've got the visual of, the grid, I'm not sure how high your math goes, but they've got the grid for, for, for working out geometry and line segments and all of that is also something that's, that's helpful. There are also programs, math programs, that, that would allow them to actually work the, pro, 
the, the problems, and they're 3D. Um, gizmos, not gizmos and gadgets, but gizmos is a, is a program for math and science that's uh, very, that demonstrates the concepts well, that, that might be interesting. What were you going to say? Right. And, and the older ones enjoy it, too. It's not just for the younger ones. So. And you could also ask those that you know that understand it to come up and teach it, to work the problem and explain the steps, because then not only are they teaching it for their own retention, they're learning how to present. Make sure they learn how to stand to the side and not in front of their problem. But um, th- those are just some things. Anybody else have any other ideas for her in terms of math? Making it more interactive? Do they have manipulatives? They do. They do. It's just a matter of finding out, you know, how you integrate that into a particular concept that you want to teach because obviously you're above that. But but you could certainly you you could certainly you know, find ways to, to do that. So using cooperative groups to work math problems and then sharing those answers in the process. It's very good. All right, I'm going to talk just the last little bit here about Bloom's Taxonomy. How many of you are familiar with Bloom's Taxonomy? Great. How many of you use it in some form in your teaching? All right. Uh, for those, Bloom, uh, Benjamin Bloom developed this higher-level of thinking uh, in the 50s. It has been revised, and so I'm going to show you, we're just going to take a look at the old taxonomy versus the new one, and really it's very similar. The, the wording has just changed. I think it's probably, you know, it's, just, it's a little clearer. In the old one, now keep in mind that this is showing the levels of, of thinking from knowledge to comprehension, application of information, analysis of information, synthesis, and evaluation. That is not to say that kindergartens use knowledge and by the time they're in high school they can evaluate. Now, really, we're using all of these levels all the time. We're gathering information, we're giving, you know, we're recalling what we know and so forth. Um, 
Now, the new one, instead of evaluation, is creating, because ultimately, is that not what we want? When we learned and we took a look at this retention pyramid and we look at assessment, when students can actually produce or reproduce what they've learned, we know that they've learned it. And so really creating would be the highest. They've, they changed some of the wording. Remembering has to do with recall. If I were to ask you, you know, the state of Texas, those of you that live here, um, would have that information, and that's just recall. Information that everybody knows, you're just asking. Understanding, um, understanding is really being able to um, use the information beyond just recalling it and then applying it and analyzing, evaluating, and creating. I'm going to go through some of these somewhat quickly. Now, what's attached to these in terms of your being able to use them in the classroom? are verbs related to each of these levels and questions that we can, we can uh, prompt our students in. And because a lot of you are familiar with this, I really am going to go through this quickly um, and maybe give a few examples specific to some, some subject areas. Remembering involves... Um, Listing or memorizing, um, showing or locating the product that you might that might show that they remember something is a quiz or a definition, a fact, uh, so forth. Labeling something. As far as the teacher, teacher would be giving direct instruction, telling, showing, um, examining. The teacher's just going to, the student's just going to respond, give the information that they've, they've been learned, uh, that they've, they've been told. Um, I would like to sort of get to the higher levels, so I'm just going to move on here. In terms of understanding, the kids are interpreting and they're summarizing and they're paraphrasing and classifying the information that they have. They may be comparing or explaining something. In applying, they're going beyond those basic things to taking the information and applying it to another situation, um, to their situation. They're implementing it. They're carrying it out. Um, they're using that information. So we can see again that learning's taking place, and this is an important step. The next is analyzing. And again, you know, you think in terms of, well, you know, can a first grade analyze or a kindergartner analyze? If you do guided reading and you're a kindergarten teacher, you're doing this all the time. Uh, asking questions of students is so important. But the kinds of questions that we ask are also important because it sort of guides that. If you're a literature teacher and all you're asking for is, you know, tell the setting, tell the character, um, you know, the plot, that's, that's really not causing them to think very deeply. When you ask them to compare the main character, you know, or the antagonist with the protagonist, or you ask them to explain how the character, the main character grew, you know, spiritually or grew emotionally or whatever from the beginning of the book to the end, or what did the main character learn about God, or what did he learn about fear or what did he learn about their relationship with the family or those kinds of questions?
cause students to think much more deeply than just to say, you know, the main character was a little boy that lived on a farm in the woods kind of thing. Um, and there's a lot of ways of analyzing information. I'm sure you're familiar with organizational charts and that kind of thing, webbing. Then we also have evaluating. And evaluating uh, then takes us to making some judgments and testing what that judgment might be, um, monitoring the results of that, coming up with a hypothesis about something. And then we have creating, and which is why uh, your example of what your students are doing in terms of creating a video is so fabulous because what they're doing is they are creating, they have designed something, constructed something based on what they learned, and then they're reproducing it to share with others. So again, the highest level of thinking is involved in that, and the highest retention is involved. So good job. <laughs> um, those kinds of activities are are the, you know, we, we can't do those every single day, but there ought to be, we ought to embed them into our plans for the year. I find it very helpful at the beginning of the year to say to teachers, when you look over your overall plan, I want to see, I don't care if you've figured out who's going to be your guest speaker, but I want to see that at some point in your plan, you're going to have some, this month, you're going to find a guest speaker on this topic, or you're going to implement some kind of technology here, or you're going to use United Streaming to, to, to show some information here, or you're going to plan some project or program. Because sometimes when we step back, when we're in the day-to-day -day and we're moving along, I say to the teachers, if you... If you are finding your classroom humdrum, guess what? So are your kids. And if you're bored with your routine, they're bored with your routine. So stop and think, okay, what can I do to change this up? Have, when was the last time I played an interactive game? When was the last time I let my kids work in cooperative groups? When was the last time they, they did a really neat project and presented it to the class? Uh, and, and, and uh, you know, get those in there right away. But if you start the year with that plan, of, of plugging in certain things, you know, once a week, once every two weeks, something that you know is going to bring success and motivation to your students, you know, that, that will be very helpful. So any, any questions? There's a lot here, but I just... All right, here, here is one example of space where we can go through this and see how, how this might relate to a, a, a lesson. At the remembering level, the students may cut out um, space pictures from a magazine and make a display or a collage and use space words. Um, the activity might be to list the names of all the planets. In understanding, you might ask them to make their desk into a spaceship. That would be awfully fun for the younger kids. Make an astronaut from um, a, a puppet play. Use it to tell what an astronaut does. Make a model of the planet in our solar system. Applying. At that level, they're going to keep a diary of a space adventure? What sort of instructions would you need to make a space, uh, make space music? 
Make a list of questions that you would like to ask an astronaut. Analyzing. Make an application from a person applying for a job for an astronaut. Compare Galileo's telescope to a modern telescope. Okay, they're having to make some comparisons. Evaluating. Create the benefits for living on Earth and the moon. Wow. Okay, they're having to really think, all right, well, what is it like here? What would it be like there? Can you take three people with you to the moon? Choose and give reasons. Choose a planet that you'd like to live on and explain why. In creating, write a newspaper report for the following headline. Spaceship out of control. Um, We didn't cover the scamper strategy, but... um, you know, they can create something that they're doing. Next year, our students in in history will be studying Michelangelo. I'm sure that some of you are familiar with the little technique of having the kids draw, get under their desk and draw, um, as he did on on the the ceiling, upside down, um, to studying Leonardo da Vinci, to do a portrait of Mona Lisa, or a self-portrait, or for them to invent something as, Michael, as uh, Leonardo did. So there's a lot of different things in terms of creating that help students to learn and go beyond just who is Michelangelo and you know, so forth. So, okay. I'm going to, there's a lot of questions here, but again, it sounds like you all are familiar with it. Um, if you're not, you're going to get it in the handout. There's also this reference book for differentiated instruction. So if you would like to, we'll pass these out. All right. Well, I think that we will end. And if you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer them. If you want to Stay and share. I think one of the benefits of our being together is you all sharing ideas. Sometimes you don't think they're... Yes. Uh Uh-huh. And, and it's a memory that they, they will have as well. One of the things that we do, we've, we have a, a very unusual history program. But as I mentioned, we do a history event every year. So the year that we cover the Middle, the middle Ages, we put on a feast and the kids all dress and their uh, middle school and high school are anything from serfs to nobility. And they, they, they serve based on who they are. So we have the servants that will serve the food. We have entertainers, we have jesters and uh, minstrels and storytellers and all, you know, jugglers. And so they'll do the entertaining for the parents. And then we have the nobility and they will put on um, a drama and explain something about who they are and, and their role in medieval life. All of the parents, we've had one one year where all, except for one couple, all of them came dressed in medieval costumes. Um, the students ahead of time were responsible for creating the decorations for the auditorium. So they all made family shields. 
understanding what those shields and crests meant in that time period. So they would do one that would represent their family. Um, they did mosaics so that those were displayed and, and that kind of thing. Then the year that they do the Renaissance, we have a Renaissance ball, and the students in the middle school and high school all have to choose a character from the time period, and they are that character the entire evening. They may not talk out of character. If someone asks them about their family, it's the family of who they are, if they're Queen Elizabeth or whatever the case may be. And the parents know to engage them and to ask them questions about who they are, and they interact as Renaissance individuals as they would as those characters in real time. Um, the, the one year, the last time that we did it, the students learned the minuet, and they performed the minuet, and then we invited the parents to join in that dance because, as you know, it's a, it's a group dance and something that you know is, is relatively easy to join into if you don't have the background on it. Um, the year for American history, we've done a couple different things. One year they had, in groups, they wrote their own skit and as for some event uh, that happened in history and then presented that. And I, I believe that was a faith and freedom a presentation. Then another year when in that cycle of, of history, there was a North and South encampment. So it was a Civil War activity. And groups of kids came up with their own vignettes. They had to prepare their, their costumes. They had to prepare their sets. They had to write their own script. It was a certain length of time, and we had parents that passed through each of those vignettes and listened to them with different guides that would set up each vignette and explain to them what they would be seeing as they rotated around the auditorium. Uh, let's see, that covers uh, the Old Testament. We've done Old Testaments twice as well. The, oh, I'm only coming up with one idea of what we did, on it, and we didn't repeat it, so I don't know what we did. I don't remember the other one. We, we took a look at all the Jewish feasts, all the different celebrations, and again, groups did that and, and explained the relationship between the Jewish feast and that ceremony and how it relates to New Testament, which was very interesting. And um, I guess it was last year. So last year, they went back to individual vignettes, and they, and they did different classrooms as different there was one that was a monastery. There was one that was a Viking ship. Uh, there was one that was a marketplace um, and so forth. And again, you know, the parents rotated around. So there are so many things that we can do to engage our learners in active learning that helps them to retain the information and make uh, memories as, as well that's really important. All right, um, we are, are done. I hope you all enjoy the rest of your time and your lunch this afternoon. God bless you. Are you? Well, again, you, you, at a high school level, you could look at it differently. Our honor students are required to do more, obviously. And so if that may be how you handle that, that if they're an honor student, you're giving them the grade based on an honor student and they're getting that 
that grade difference because it's an honors class. I would also say that if that one-page paper has all the elements, because that's important that they understand the elements that you are wanting them to, to remember or to have. So if those elements carry the same, you know, if that one-page paper for that child that that's, has some challenges versus the other one who goes, you know, a little bit more. And, you know, I, I think that you have, have to look at that. What, what are the expectations? Because basically everyone should have this, this expectation. And then what they do above and beyond that, you know, you, you, may, you may separate it out as either honors work or as extra, um, you know, bonus credits or whatever. But More points if you go above it, which which is interesting because because really what ends up happening because so often these these kids I mean I've seen it time and again that are challenged are so diligent and they'll end up working for those extra points and getting it but you but in terms of providing an option for those that find it very challenging to get certain work done and and you know what you may have a population of, you know, truly average and above average students. That true challenge student that I was talking about may be ones that are more likely to be found in a public school setting than in our setting. So it could be that you're starting with a five-page paper and you're giving extra points for that PowerPoint. Mm-hmm.